America's Oldies But Goodies, Episode 14. Dad went out in the back, uh, in the back alley, grabbed a cement-soaked piece of plywood, brought it in. Pat Conley grabbed it and broke it over the microphone and <laughs> recorded it. <laughs> and we said, "Well, that sounds like a busting surfboard." Yeah, because we were surfers and we all surfed. Pat and I, especially. There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow And tomorrow's just a dream away. Hey everyone, and welcome to another encounter with some groovy moments from the past. We're visiting the 60s with host Dick Scopatoni, whose pop group Harper's Bazaar had a hit record back then called Feelin' Groovy. He'll be talking with our guests about a decade that shaped a whole generation, not only with the most magnificent music ever made, but also the politics, protests, and pretty much everything that happened in the swing in 60s. So, Dick, who's on today's show? Hey, thanks, John. When I was in high school, there was really only two things I was interested in, surfing and girls, and not in that order. We'd spend our summers on the beach in Santa Cruz from 7 in the morning until 7 at night, and every summer we would make at least one surfing trip, or surf and safari if you want to call it that, down the coast to Southern California. We went to every surf movie in every civic auditorium between Santa Cruz and Laguna Beach, and it was during those years that I worked for Jack O'Neill selling surfboards and wetsuits and listening to some of the best surf music the 60s gave us. For retro and vintage merchandise, you'll find some fabulous buys at Dick's website, americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. Autograph records, tiki mugs, golf memorabilia, even a Paul McCartney signed album cover. Check it out at americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. By the way, you can listen to every episode of our show there too. That's americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. 
Every summer when I was in high school, we used to make our annual trip from Santa Cruz down to Southern California and hit all the surf spots along the way. We'd stop at the Rendezvous Ballroom in Newport Beach to hear Dick Dale and the Deltones and then on to Laguna Beach High School to hear Bruce Brown in person narrating his surf movies. And there was always those Close-up shots of Toes Hanging Ten, backed up by probably the most famous surf song ever recorded, Wipeout. The band was the Safaris, and the guitar man was Bob Berryhill, who just happens to be with us today. Hey, Bob, thanks for joining me on America's Oldies But Goodies. Hey, surf's up right here in Laguna Beach. Is it really? All right. Now, where are you? Are you in Laguna Beach? I'm in Laguna Beach. Oh, my God. All right. Yeah, home of the Bruce Brown uh, movies. Saw them there many times. Do you know that we'd come down, as I said, every summer, and we would go to what I think was Laguna Beach High School at that time. And I have a friend who now lives in Laguna Beach. I visited him one time, and when I was visiting him, I told him about many years ago how we used to go to the surf movies. He said, well, let's drive by and see if the place looked the same. Well, it did look the same to me as you came up the hill. The very first building in that high school complex was where I believe I used to go to see Bruce Brown. Yeah, he would play in the gymnasiums, you know, the various auditoriums, because we grew up in Glendora, my wife and I, and uh, and the safaris, Yeah, and we uh, would, he would bring his movies to our gymnasium and show them with a soundtrack, and it would always be surf music, of course, so it was a great experience, because we really hadn't had anybody, there wasn't any short movies, really, about anything, I mean, it was, I used to watch the programs on TV that had skiing, snow skiing and and then some water skiing but surfing was kind of always relegated to the movie at the school gym right they didn't have any surfing on tv back then they were very basic and we of course we used to see them regularly in santa cruz at the civic auditorium in santa cruz let's let's just go back before the wipeout time frame and just kind of bring everybody up to speed uh basically where you started were you born in southern california yeah, I was born in Covina, California. Okay. I grew up in Glendora, which is a little town north of Covina, a few miles, and a little, they call it a bedroom community now. But uh, back then, it was orange groves. Oh, yeah, I bet. <laughs> it was an orange growing. They had packing houses along the railroad track, and my family was into orchard maintenance, doing spraying and picking and handling orchards and doing construction and things like that. And so I kind of grew up in a orange-packing construction family that uh, enjoyed living in Glendora. Did you surf as a kid? Well, what happened was that's kind of the the whole thing with my life has been kind of one of those great things that have happened to a kid that had no purpose in it happening, but it did. I actually, in 1960, when just after they started flying the 707 jets to Hawaii, my mom and dad, because they were very successful business people, my dad was a contractor, and they were building track houses all over San Gabriel Valley. My dad was involved with all of that. Anyway, he made a lot of money, so we took took myself, my an older sister, my mom, and we all went to Hawaii. And so I had the luxury of learning to surf from a real beach boy. Yeah, wow. Went on Waikiki Beach. I started when I was 13, 1960, and uh, went out there and, and just fell in love with surfing. Had to be heavenly, and I'm trying to remember the guy's name. He had a band that was on TV. Well, it's not rock and roll. This was Hawaiian music. Harry somebody, Harry Owens or... Well, Harry Owens. 
Hawaiians, yeah, he did Hawaiian. There was um, all kinds. It was the uh, Leaky Brothers, uh, the Leaky, Lackey Trio, I think they were called. I mean, I mean, back when Hilo Hattie was actually doing the hula. Uh-huh. That's right. <laughs> she had a whole hula thing, and uh, this was before 1960. I mean, it was the uh, Bain Dragon Waikiki Beach there. It was a two-way highway and parked along there with surfboards in your car, and, and you could hang out at Waikiki Beach, and... That wasn't the, the only big hotel was the I think the uh, Ala Moana and and then the Kaiser Hawaiian Village down the way where they do all the Hawaii Five O filming and stuff. So I got to go out and go surfing right there, my sister and I. So we got taught how to surf. I just fell in love with it because it was freedom. You know, I mean, I learned to water ski because my dad had ski boats, and we go down to Newport Bay and Back Bay and Balboa area and, and water ski. But I finally got to go surfing when I was 13. I said, wow, this is for me. And so for the next 50 years, I surfed regularly. Yeah, oh, that's great. That yeah. is great. So you managed to stick with it for a while. I, You know, after I got out of high school, as much as I love surfing, and, and we would carry our surfboards on our heads and walk down to the beach in Santa Cruz, which was probably about a mile and a half walk from up on the hill where we lived. So we were pretty heavy-duty surfers, but I got out of it, and uh, and I've never really gotten back into it. I kind of, you know what I miss is the water and the smell of the ocean. Yeah, well, that's something my wife and I uh, fell in love with when we were teenagers. Is our first date was at Doheny Beach. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so surfing. She had a green surfboard, and I had a surfboard, and we went down there together and uh, been surfing ever since. Do you remember about what year that would have been at Doheny? Early 60s? You know, 1960 through 1966 was great surfing. Great surfing up until they put the harbor in. You know, when they, they killed Killer Dana, because we used to go surfing at Dana, where they call Killer Dana now. It used to be a big surfing spot. Now it's got a big rock jetty there, and you can't do much with it. But uh, it's, it's good for fishing, uh, but that's about it. But, uh, yeah, that was 1960 through about 68 or so. Okay. We did a lot of surfing up and down the coast. I wouldn't be at all surprised if we somehow didn't run into each other down there, because that was, the, every summer, that Doheny Beach was our main stay. That's where we camped, and then we went to all the beaches from there. Well, if you saw a 57 Chevy four-door turquoise with surf racks on it, that was my wife. We would drive that from Glendora all the way down with the, the surf racks were kind of rusted onto the rails on the top, but <laughs> we got them on there and uh, the, the floorboards were full of sand. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll bet. And that all the old uh, surfing wagons at that time truly were just old surfing wagons. They well, were... the car was worth 200 bucks then, yeah. 57 Chevy. Uh-huh, you know, <laughs> that's right. And it was her, she got it for her uh, graduation from high school or something. And uh, her dad had it painted by her brother-in-law in his garage. And, you know, it looked nice, but uh, it was just our surf buggy, and we'd cruise up and down there. Well, I can remember we made our trip down in the summer, and that night camped at Doheny. And the next morning at 6 in the morning, we were out on the water at Trestles. And perfect blue sky, uh, no wind, just perfect waves. And uh, so that was all, that was paradise back then, just about as paradisey as you can get. Yeah. Well, that whole area down there is still just tons of people surfing out there. 
like they have several different areas for long borders and short borders off from trestles down to the marine base there down in front of the uh, nuclear station down there. And do the marines not keep people out anymore because you used to be you couldn't go there? Used to. and It's still kind of restricted, but they kind of let it slide. Okay. But, you know, you get caught once in a while, but not a big deal. Yeah. Now, uh, did you start playing music in high school? I started in uh, when I was eight years old. Okay. I started, my parents were into what they called Western music in those days. Instead of, it's called country now. Sure, yeah, right. <laughs> and so they had a lot of friends who were professional musicians that would come through uh, the Glendora area, and they had a lot of friends who played, and they would come over to our house. And when we were just kids, there would be about 25 of us sitting around our living room all playing guitar, vid- uh, banjo, fiddles, accordions, all kinds of acoustic gear. And then that was when I was about 8 to 10 and then when I went to Hawaii, and when I was 13, that's when I really started to, to play guitar because I went to, um, along with surfing, learning to surf from that point, I also saw a guy playing ukulele, just the most beautiful sort of lead guitar ukulele, mm-hmm. more than just strumming. He was playing notes and playing melodies, Hawaiian melodies, and, and he was about 24 up there and uh, he looked great and I told my dad dad I want to do that <laughs> yeah, you know okay. so the next morning at the, at the what was called the Kaiser Hawaiian Village then uh, went down in the foyer area it was all open that's what was so amazing about Hawaii is that there was no doors on the Hawaii hotels because they were always open because of the trade winds anyway he goes walking across I recognized him he walked across the the uh, Lanai area there and I ran up to him, and, you know, I'm only 13, and I grabbed him, I said, I, I want an ukulele, can you teach me, you know, and he says, okay, so he took my dad and I downtown to a, a Kamaka ukulele store, and picked a bunch of them off the wall, and played them, and said, hey, this is a good one, so it was a uh, koa wood ukulele, it was beautiful, and he got picked out a book for me to say, okay, you learn to play with this book, and here's your uh, ukulele, and I said, well, how much is it? Oh, 15 bucks. Oh, Gee. To my dad and said, Dad, can I have 15 bucks? Uh, yeah, you know, we're talking 1960. Yeah. You know, you ask your dad for a buck, you were getting <laughs> a, a lot. So anyway, he paid for it because we were on vacation and he couldn't, couldn't back down. So he bought it. And so I spent that next week, we traveled all over the islands. Those days we called the Cook Tours. And so I got on the airplane and we'd get into the next hotel. And I'd sit around the lobby and just practice. You know, I just loved it. And just went all over Hawaii playing ukulele and and learning Little Brown Jug and <laughs> all the songs. And then I spent a whole week coming back on the SS Lurleen, which was oh, a sure. cruise ship. Yes. And I sat in the lobby and played for a whole week. I mean, I, there was nothing else to do on cruise ships in those days. It wasn't like today's Disney where you got stretched lines and swimming pools. And this thing had a swimming pool, but it wasn't like the ones they have today. And so I just basically sat inside the foyer of the, wherever they, the cocktail room or wherever it was, card room and played and that was great it sounds like just great memories of the whole hawaiian scene with the sun and the surf and everything what a different feel and as a kid that must have just been spectacular so at some point you shifted i'm going to assume over to electric guitar yeah well what happened was is i came back to glendora and i wanted to find an ukulele teacher at the glendora music store which is who i had only music star that was in Glendora anyway. Uh, and they said, well, we, have, we don't have ukulele, but we can, we can do guitar. I said, well, you know, they both have strings, and I'll just go ahead. And I played guitar already 
from when I was about eight. So I was already used to strumming chords and things. But I said, I really want to learn to read music, and I want to you know, really get good at lead guitar. And I said, okay, well, we have a teacher here. She knows all about it. And so this woman, I believe her name was Linda. Uh, she was about 20-something, and, and she had a Stratocaster, a blonde Stratocaster guitar, which I thought, wow, that's awesome. And so I uh, sat there. I was playing my dad's silvertone acoustic guitar that he had since he was a kid, and, and she showed me a few uh, licks, and I started learning to read music, and she started teaching me to read charts and chord sheets and lead sheets and things like that, and then I got, well, I need to get electric, so my dad's friend, uh, Walter Crabtree, used to play a Telecaster, and I said, well, why don't you find me a guitar, because he was really into the buying and selling and stuff, so he brought over a, like about a 1956 blonde Telecaster and a little blonde champ, looks like an amp, a blonde little amp, and uh, I said, well, how much is this? It was 150 bucks. Probably 6000 right about now. <laughs> yeah, it's about six grand today. Yeah. And so 150 was like six grand then to a kid. But So I said, Dad, I'll pay you back. So he, he, my dad forked over the 150 and I got the guitar, and I started, took lessons uh, for about two years, and that's uh, really where I met uh, Jim Fuller, uh, the other guitar player. He was taking lessons from the same teacher. Okay. So we both played in the same groups. At uh, They had a group lesson sometimes, and we'd all... 20 or 30 kids of us would sit around a room and we'd stand up and play a lead of some type and then sit down. We'd all go around. and <laughs> So it was kind of a starting point. And so yeah, did you actively think about starting a, quote, band? Well, it was 13, 14 years old, 15. We were just getting into junior high. So it was basically our eighth grade uh, talent show uh, at Sellers Junior High School. We used to have talent shows every year for the seventh and eighth grades and uh i brought my uh, teacher to play backup for me so i played like walk don't run or something like that yeah and she backed me up and then pat and jim fuller that's where i really well i knew pat because we were in sixth grade together but i met pat and fuller got together and they said well can we borrow your guitars and your amps because we wanted to play in the contest and so <laughs> jim and pat got up there and and i'm standing off stage and they're just like Mutt and Jeff up there. They just couldn't do a thing. And it was like they were trying to play a song together. And, you know, Pat didn't know how to do anything hardly, but just kind of plunk a little bit. And Fuller was pretty good. And so they were trying to play together. And so they started borrowing. They used my equipment to play through the show. And we did our thing. And, and then my wife, Jean, she was actually a dancer doing modern dance. So they did it to like Hound Dog or something. And so we were all kind of up there together. And at that point, there were other groups. Uh, that played, uh, had groups of guys playing. And so from that point on, they saw I had equipment, so everybody wanted to go over to my house and rehearse, so I had lots of guys coming over and playing as the, and that, from that point on. Hey, do you feel a song coming on? I do. Let's take a break, just enough time for a quick cappuccino, and we'll return shortly. <laughs> She acts sort of teenage, just in between age, looks about four foot three. Although she's just small fry, just about so high, Gidget is the one for me. A regular tomboy, but dressed for a prom, boy how cute can one girl be? 
Although she's not king size, her finger is ring size. Gidget is the one for me. If she says she loves you, you can bet your boots she loves you. Now, take us to Wipeout. How did that whole thing come about? Well, it's one of those situations where in Glendora, it was a pretty limited group of guys, but we would go around, hang around each other and play music, and I had good friends who were uh, that played. And then one day, uh, Jim Fuller, uh, this is, this is uh, September of 1962. Okay, we're sophomores in high school, mm-hmm. and we're all 15 years old. And uh, Jim Fuller and Pat Conley called me up on the phone and said, Hey, Bob, can we come over and practice? It's on a Saturday. And I said, Well, sure. You know, we've done that, other things like that before. So they came over, and we practiced for about uh, two or three hours. I played all the songs I knew, and Fuller played all that he knew, and Conley would sit there and play on my Telecaster because he didn't have a guitar. Fuller had a little dual sonic fender, and I had my jazz master at that point. I bought a new jazz master. I was moving up doing con- I was doing my own recitals and things and that's what I wanted to look better so I bought the Jazz Master and Fender Jazz Master anyway <clears throat> they came over and after about three hours of practice Pat Conley says hey Bob uh, I've got a gig for us tonight do you want to play I went well sure he said we're at well it's going to be at Pomona Catholic High School it's going to be a, after a football game we're going to play a, a sock hop as we used to call them in those days and I said sure so I said well we don't have a drummer and Pat goes, well, we're going to meet the drummer there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, you know, I said, well, sure, why not? I'm game, because I'm always game for things like that. So we packed all of my stuff. My, I had a uh, Fender uh, Bandmaster with two 12-inch speakers and four places to plug guitars into and put my equipment in the back of my mom's 61 Cadillac, pink Cadillac she had. And she and my dad drove us to Pomona Catholic High School. And so we, we got to the high school, and sure enough, there's Ron Wilson, the drummer of Wipeout, setting up his drums under the basketball hoop. <laughs> and there's a bunch of kids around playing, you know, decorating the place and getting ready. So we, we plugged in and started playing, and, and then the football game got over, and all the kids showed up, and, and uh, they really liked the sound we had. You know, everybody was dancing and having a good time. And so Fuller and Pat and I said, well, Ronnie, why don't we uh, form a band? So they said, okay. Um, I said, well, we need a manager because I knew that if you didn't have some lease management, you weren't doing anything. They said, well, we know Dale Smallin. And I said, well, I know him as well. He was my uh, Boy Scout uh, leader. Yeah, Scoutmaster. Okay. Scoutmaster. And so he said, they said, okay, well, let's go over to his place. So we started practicing at his uh, photography studio. He used to make um, documentary films like Bicycle Safety, which I was in one when I was in sixth grade. Ah. And he was the producer of the movie. And so was Pat Conley and I, because uh, we were at sixth grade at Gordon Elementary together. And so, um, anyway, I knew Dale. And so we started rehearsing. And then um, after we rehearsed a couple, two or three times, Dale got us a job at the uh, teen center in Azusa. So we started, we played uh, there. And it sounded good. And then one night in um, oh, the next month or two, Ronnie came up to me and said, hey, had a dream about a song called Surfer Joe. <sighs> so I said, cool, let me put some chords to it. So, the, you know, what do you do when you're 15? You put the most primitive chord progression you can behind it. So I put that chord progression, and, and we started practicing that. And when we got it all done, uh, 
our manager, Dale, says, hey, that's a good song. It sounds kind of Beach Boyish. Why don't we go and record it? So anyway, we think, well, okay, we're going to go to um, Hollywood to record because that's where the studios were. Yeah. So he says, no, nah, no, nah, we're going to a, a place. It's really cool. It's out in Cucamonga. How many people go to Cucamonga? Okay, right, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a joke, but that was a real town. It's now called Rancho Cucamonga, okay. which is a big area out east of Los Angeles where everybody moved to uh, during the 80s to, to buy cheap housing. And so anyway, here's this old town that was basically a ghost town. And so we, what we did is we came to, everybody showed up at my driveway. There was uh, Ron Wilson, Pat Connie, Jim Fuller, and Bob Berry Hill, and myself. We were standing there in the driveway, and Dale pulls in, and his, his, I think it was a 59 Chrysler Imperial, big blue thing with big fins on it, pulls up in my yard, and we're all standing out there, and my Uncle Don is there, and my dad, and Dale goes, okay, where's the 150 bucks? Oh, I see. <laughs> Everybody opened, you know, Pat and Jim and Ronnie, naturally, they didn't have any money. And they all looked at me and as the money pocket. So I, I said, well, let me go ask my mom. <laughs> <laughs> so I went in the house and said, Mom, uh, I need a check for 150 bucks. You know, I mean, again, that's a lot of money in 1962. <laughs> I mean, major stuff, because I said, well, I'll pay you back. And so I got back outside and said, guys, you have to pay us back, but my mom's going to write a check. So she gave me a check, and we all got in our cars. I had uh, rebuilt a 1956 Ford pickup truck at that point, everything but the paint job. And so I did the engine trance and all that. So I put all the equipment in the back of my truck, and my dad had to drive with me because I only had a learner's permit. I'm 15 and a half at this point. So we drove to Cucamonga, and we pulled up in front, and I'm going, wow, is this really the place? And, and so we opened the door, and the door opens like inner sanctum, you know, the squeaky door. <laughs> yeah, And right. there is this blacked-out studio in there that, that Paul Buff, who later um, years, his studio was quite famous. Frank Zappa actually bought the studio later on. Really, that same studio in that location? Same studio, same place. Anyway, so Paul Buff was a, was a Marine, who had learned electronics in the Marine Corps and built his own studio. And so he, he sort of became the, might say, the father of, of surf music because of recording because he was the cheapest place and he knew how to make it sound good. He was like a third, sort of like the fifth Beatle, you know, it's kind of like the, the producer. He knew how to position equipment in his room and make you sound good. We put my amp in there, Ronnie's drums and another amp. And then we said, well, what are we gonna do with the bass? Said, well, the bass is going direct. Well, we'd never heard that before. And in fact, but I said, well, we don't even have a bass. And Pat says, well, hang on, I got a bass. So the first night uh, Pat Conley ever played the bass guitar was the night he played Wipeout. Really? He brought in a harmony bass that he borrowed from his cousin, yeah. from a Sears harmony bass. He plugged it in direct. And uh, then we started, um, started playing, did a couple of songs to kind of warm up. And then Ronnie, they said, okay, well, let's do uh, Surf for Joe. So we recorded we got through and did the did the chord progression and we worked out parts and uh, we got um, Surfer Joe recorded and then Ronnie got up and did the overdub the voice because that's what you did in those days and he sang that and the mic was set up there and and we were all done and and they said hey uh, Paul Buff gets on the talk back button the little button you know behind the window of the studio goes boys you need a second song for your 45 and I go well we haven't written another song. He says, well, okay, the option is 
we can take and put Surfer Joe on both sides of your 45, or you can write another song right now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You go, Ronnie starts playing a drum cadence. That, that cadence that's on Wipeout, he starts playing that. And he just hits it, and I started going, well, we better put some chords and a melody, bass line, or this is going to be a, uh, it's going to be a drum solo. And so I put these chord breaks in it, because I love to play grand bar chords, and, and we started putting, Pat Conley goes, da-da-da-da, da-da-da, and Fuller goes, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, with the lead. And we, after first take, he said, that's pretty good, try it again. So we did it a second time, and they said, well, okay, let's do it. One more time. And so I had to kind of add the breaks and the, the arrangement to it and said, okay, third time through, we recorded it, and uh, we got the song done. And that was it. Amazing. What I'm guessing he must have had some kind of a live echo chamber somewhere in that building. Well, you know, like I say, he was the, like an instrument. He had, a, he had made everything himself. He did have a recording plate. I believe it was on the roof. One of those things that were designed, uh, he bought somewhere or made it himself, but it wasn't a spring reverb. It was what they called a plate reverb, I believe, mm-hmm. that was in there. But he had, he had a, a mono studio where he did just, he, you could do stereo, but we didn't have the money. So we did it mono. And so it came out with one track, you know what I mean, at the end. And so he recorded that, and then, then he says, well, what do you want to call this thing? And uh, Jim Fuller happened to have a switchblade in his pocket, because he'd been to Tijuana the weekend before. Oh, and he goes up to the microphone and he clicks it. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and Paul goes, well, that ain't good enough. We need something louder. So my dad went out in the back, uh, in the back alley, grabbed a cement-soaked piece of plywood, brought it in. Pat Conley grabbed it and broke it over the microphone and <laughs> recorded it. Oh, and we geez. said, well, that sounds like a busting surfboard. Yeah. Because we were surfers, and we all surfed, Pat and I especially. And um, so Pat and... Uh, those guys started talking, and I said, well, why don't we have it like Goofy going over the falls? And so Dale Smallin comes out of the rehearsal, out of the talk back room, anyway, studio, comes up to the microphone and goes, ha, 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 wipeout. Just like that, out of the blue. And they tuck on the, they, so we got the wipeout laugh, we got the crack, and wipeout becomes the theme yeah. of the song. Amazing. And then two weeks later, we had a 45. That's uh, that's like what you'd see in a movie. It's the story of that thing you do. Yeah. It, you just show up, and that's why everybody calls it a fluke. Well, it's kind of like your best efforts. You all put it together, and it works. And that's kind of the way the safaris always worked, because from then on, whenever we well, we got on the deck, dot records, and let's see, that's basically somewhere around December of 62, and by April of 63, it was number one in Los Angeles. And then by July, it was number one in the United States, or number two, depending on which chart you looked at. And then by August, September, it had traveled all the way around the world. That's just amazing. Japan, Australia, Germany, Europe, Asia, all over. So one of those songs was the A-side. And was Surfer Joe like the B-side? Well, Surfer Joe was initially the A-side because that's the reason we went to the studio. But, you know, it's like anything else. A forty-five has two sides. And so when Wipeout becomes a hit, the, the B-side becomes a hit as well, although you don't hear it, because it, they don't, the writer of it gets paid as if he was on both sides. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so Ronnie uh, had songwriter 
we thought I thought we'd give Ronnie the whole Surfer Joe because it was his idea. Although I put the music to it, but hey, you know, in those days we weren't splitting things up. But it was a situation where, you know, when you have the story. I was going to say is that when we were on Dot, we went to record our album, and then when we we had to go through a lawsuit. I don't know if you've heard of all that. No, I don't. No. Well, I can go over that. But then when we got on the Decca, from that point on, we from about September of 1963 on, we were on Decca Records. And Decca allowed us to do the same thing. We would just show up at the studio, and we would play. It's what our first album was called, The Safaris Play, because we would just start playing. And we would play a song that we liked to play on our concert series. Then we'd say, hey, that sounds good. Let me try this. And we'd start up another song, and it would be an original song. You know, so we did things like Point Panic and Scatter Shield and Dune Buggy, Burning Rubber, Hot Rod Graveyard. All the songs that the Safaris did originally were always wrote in the studio that's amazing at the time we never brought a song in and said hey listen to this other than ronnie he would he'd be the only one who would bring one in and it was always a vocal so whatever he had for vocals it was original vocals he would write it at home you know on a piece of newspaper or an envelope or something and bring it in and set it up and start singing it and we'd have to put the music to it so, so do you remember what studio you must have been in a studio in hollywood at that point yeah when we got on to decca we went to uh, United and Gold Star. Western is right up the street from United. Yeah, United, and there was another one on that street. All of those studios, and what was great about that is it was, there were guys like Hal Blaine. His drums would be in the studio. Or in that, Glenn, and Glenn Campbell would be in the studio. And, and all, all the guys who were, who were the sort of the wrecking crew guys, they were all around us. You know, and they would come in and out of the studio looking at us, and there we are, just a bunch of snotty-nosed <laughs> 16-year-olds, yeah. just playing noise. We just made noise, you know, compared to those guys. <laughs> well, the word garage band had not been famed, but we were definitely the quintessential garage okay. band. Okay, yeah, yeah. It, it sounds like it. We had, uh, you know, Harper's uh, somewhat to our chagrin, and I'll explain why in a minute. Uh, we used the Wrecking Crew on, on everything that we recorded. We we used them because that's what Warner said we had to do, and we were fine with that, and they were fabulous musicians. No problem there. But we did reach a point, I want to say long about maybe the fourth album where we said we want to play our own instruments because we we never played any instruments in the studio, and uh, they finally relented and at that point and let us play our own. But the feeling groovy thing that was all wrecking crew people that did that. Yeah, feeling so. groovy and those kind of songs were very much the sort of the formula that the uh, the major record labels kind yeah. of really wanted. Mm -hmm. Well, that and and that's kind of what happened to us. We finally had to succumb to formulas like that because. Decca was wanting more and more albums. We had six albums. I think we did eight albums in total as a safaris, but they wanted that kind of stuff as well. Let's take a brief moment to listen to a familiar tune. We'll be right back. Every night I sit here by my window, window. staring at lonely Watching lovers holding hands and laughing, laughing And thinking about the things we used to do Thinking of things Like a walk in the park things. Like a kiss in the dark things. 
Like a sailboat ride What about the night we cried Things like a lover's vow Things that we don't do now Thinking about the things we used to do Let's talk about, and I think I probably already know the answer because I think we've been talking about it, but I'll ask you anyway. What do you consider to be among your most notable successes? Obviously, Wipeout has been, it sort of started things off, but yeah. uh, that's one of those things where right out of the bag, you are famous. I mean, you go from being a country bumpkin in, in Glendora, Hayseed, they used to call us, and uh, Suddenly, I'm playing the Hollywood Bowl. And we're, I mean, we're only 15, 16. So the mental state of a 16-year-old is nothing compared to a 24-year-old. And everybody we would play with, all of the musicians, all the guys, were always in their 20s. You know, we had the, the Righteous Brothers would show up and want us to back them up at the Cinnamon Center in, up in Fresno. That was our first away gig. You know, here we are, 16-year-old, and we're going to back up the Righteous Brothers. You know, and now this is before they had their their big hits with Phil Spector, but they had Little Nat and Loopy Lou. Sure. That's just a little da-da-da-da-da. You know, we could do this, you know. But they would put charts out there and say, okay, play these charts. And, you know, our guys would look at that and go, what's a chart? I mean, I knew what it was because, like I say, I knew how to read music. So I could say, okay, this is the chord progression. And then... We were playing with Bobby Vinton in Hawaii, and he laid out one, and it had an F-sharp minor in it. And we're playing along his song, and that F-sharp minor comes up, and we're just sitting in the bedroom, right, uh, at the hotel room going over the charts, and, and everybody misses the chord, naturally, and he just blows a gasket. He goes, oh, I can never find anybody who can read those songs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I went, hey, guy, we're only 16. What do you expect, you know? And... Uh, so it was. We learned our lessons the hard way. We kind of bit the bullet on a lot of that. But that we used to be hired as the backup band to back up the the Shirelles or or uh, Eddie Hodges or you know things like that. And uh, you know, it's kind of like wow, that's learning the hard way. Oh, know? it is learning the hard way, and particularly if you're playing by ear, which most of us, not you, but most of us, myself included, always just played by ear. So if you put a chart in front of me, I wouldn't have a clue what was going on you you mentioned some well-known people talk about some of the well-known people you worked with uh, back in those days okay well we started out like I say basically william morris agency was booking us to do a lot of we went to hawaii and uh played at the blasdale blasdale auditorium and sold it out uh, we played with like i say bobby vinton played with uh, eddie hodges the crystals in fact i just saw uh, the Beach Boys, uh, Roy Orbison, Paul and Paula, Neil Sedaka, a lot of the doo-wop groups, when we did TV shows, uh, we would meet them, uh, Anthony and the Imperials, the Tokens. In other words, there was always, when you're as young as we were, we didn't know at the time, but there's a lot of groups that are going down in popularity as you're going up in popularity. Well, when you're going down in popularity, there's groups coming up in popularity. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, so you're, you're always making crosses of, of that in various ways. Uh, we've, uh, you know, played with Jay and the Americans. We played with Dee Dee Sharp. 
all kinds of groups that in those days, I mean, we didn't know one from the other. They were coming from back east. Just about everybody who played on the bandstand back in Philadelphia would come out and be on the TV shows in California. I assume back in the early 60s, I could be wrong, I don't know if this is a fact, but I assume that surfing was pretty much exclusively a West Coast and Hawaii kind of thing. I don't know that it was a big deal in Philadelphia. It's like any other fad. You know, when it hits, especially with the beach party movies. Yes, that's right. Now, we were just we just played uh, two weeks ago at the... Um, Cerritos Performing Arts Center down here in, in Cerritos with Frankie Avalon. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. He has a touring band, and, and we got on the stage with him, and uh, after we played, we were talking to him. He said, yeah, the Beach Party movies. I mean, he even shows clips of the Beach Party movies with Annette and, really? and all that stuff, and then they plays Wipeout in the middle of his set. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, talking to him about it, and he said, yeah, he says, you know, people, he would go, he was in Philadelphia, right? <laughs> he says people would be driving around with surfboards on their cars because of the beach movies. There were people like in New Jersey that were finding surf spots. Amazing. Along the coast. Uh, you can still find them to this day. There are guys on the East Coast that actually surf. Certain times of the year, waves come into some of those ports back on the East Coast. And uh, so there are guys actually were surfing, but obviously the, the people were wearing baggy pants and harachis and and uh, sandals and all those kind of things that were and and you got to remember that surf and another whole industry that started was surf clothes you know there were uh, hang tin mm-hmm. which sponsored us for a while they would send their clothes to back east and people were wearing baggies and you know those kind of hawaiian shirts and things so you know it's kind of like the fender guitar industry blossomed during that time the clothing industry surfboard industry and then the music industry was all and Hollywood. We were all kind of growing on this big wave together. Yeah, same thing. I worked for Jack O'Neill, uh, yeah. selling oh, yeah. boards for him when I was first year in college. I was eighteen. I sold wetsuits just as he was starting to make them. Yeah. Uh, and of course, uh, at that same time, I've gotten into more than a few arguments with people about skateboards. But I yeah. contend that skateboards. We started them here. In Santa Cruz, I could be wrong. Everybody probably claims that. But I remember take, actually taking skates apart, the old-style skates, sure. and hammering them onto a two-by-four. Did the same thing. Did you? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, my wife and I, we, uh, her, all her friends and I friends, we had uh, boards that we would, uh, two-by-fours, we'd take those, those wonderful, my mom and dad had those black and white uh, leather skates. We'd literally hacksaw them apart. Huh. And nail okay. them on the front, on the back of a, a piece of two by four, and just and wear the heck out of those those nice rubber rollers that used to go on for the roller rinks. Those things would wear out fast, but boy, they could turn a corner. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I'm speaking of turn a corner. I'm going to turn this around a little bit. In spite of all of our successes, most of us know that life is not all a bed of roses. What's your best failure story? Well, you know, I guess. I don't know if I really have a, a super big failure in my life other than, you know, once you're a hit when you're 16, 17 years old, and by the time you're 18, the Beatles took everybody off the charts. That was probably led to some difficult times because once you've been on top, number one, you know, where do you go? Yes, that's right. And so probably from 1966, until about 1971, probably was floundering 
you know, trying to find out who I was and that kind of thing. But I was never really lost because I'm a, also a, a mechanic. I can fix cars because <laughs> my dad taught me to do that when I was a kid. And so I got into auto mechanics and that kind of thing and got into teaching automotive okay. at community college. So I had to kind of find a way to stay you know, competent at something I love to do, although I, I kept playing music and, and I've done exactly what we're doing here. I've done interviews every year of my life since uh, I've been 15, you know. So I've, I've kind of just gone through those things. And I guess probably the, at one point, I really wanted to get back into music in 1971. It seemed like things were starting to change a little bit. There were more groups coming out that were not Beatlesque necessarily, but more contemporary bands had started to, American music had started coming back. And a friend of mine, uh, I don't know if you know Chuck Girard, the Castells. Anyway, Chuck Girard called me one night, said, hey, Bob, I want, I'm going to come out to California. He was living in, I think he was living in Texas. Anyway, he says, I want you to meet my new wife. And so he came out to the Long Beach Auditorium. He was doing a concert. And I thought I was going to show up and see the Castells and, and sort of doo-wop. And, and he was really into Beach Boys. He's the, uh, Chuck Gerard and Joe Kelly were two guys that did background singing on our, on our later albums. They always did the oohs and the ahs and stuff like that. And Ron Wilson would sing lead. Anyway, Chuck came out, and it turns out to be a Jesus concert. Hmm. And so I didn't know that's what it was. And so Chuck Smith, who uh, was the head cat pastor at Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, comes out and says, Taste and see, the Lord is good. And for some reason, something grabbed me by the throat, and I grabbed my wife and my son, Devin, and we went forward and accepted Jesus Christ. Oh, be darned. And so it was a case where I wanted, I had said, you know, I really wanted to get back into music. And so I, we went forward, and, and I went backstage and talked to Chuck and the guys, and I said, hey, you know, I'd really like to get back into music. And they said, well, we know this band. It's called Blessed Hope. They need a bass player. Well, I was a guitar player, yeah. but I said, hey, I can play bass. You know, what's what's tough you know so i grabbed a bass and uh started playing music again and so i started playing what's known as worship music today like uh, hill song and those kinds of guys they have all these original christian songs worship songs and i started playing music it was the greatest feeling i'd had in years i'll be done because suddenly it was a spiritual led music it wasn't just strictly for the money not for in fact when we made like a couple of bucks to play or nothing so we would go around and play and and just it was kind of like a, a, a cathartic you know just i needed to do this to get back into music and that led me to start playing wipeout again okay because nobody really wanted to hear surf music per se and so in the so we're playing probably for three or four years doing these kinds of things and started my wife and i started writing songs and my wife started writing songs and and she's a, a concert violinist and uh so after years and years of sort of going back and forth, in 19, uh, 1990, so a long ways going past, before that, in 1986, we started a punk band. Oh, And we really? started playing Wipeout <laughs> <laughs> in the punk band, and plus all these songs that my wife had written. And so we put these songs together, and then, and then suddenly we get a call from a friend of ours in 1990 to come to Europe and play. There was about 12 of us in a group, and we toured Europe, Gene and I, 
uh, and we brought our 17-year-old son, Joel, at that time, and he was really into rap music. We wrote some rap songs. <laughs> we are playing Wipeout, rap songs, Christian worship songs, anything we could do to, to make this group work. And uh, came back in 1990, and I was working for Isuzu Truck of America, which is one of the truck companies as a technical trainer because I'd been teaching automotive. And, and they had some flatbed trucks, and the, the 75th anniversary of, uh, Laguna, of uh, Seal Beach was coming up, and we were living at Seal Beach at the time. And so I got a flatbed truck, and we got on the back of this flatbed truck with all my musical equipment that I'd collected. And we ended up, we started playing Wipeout at the beginning of the parade. And every time we'd drive by people, they would all stand up and cheer. Uh, yeah. yeah. It was just something, it was a special time. And so, at the time we got to the end of the parade route, they said, hey, why don't you guys park at the end of the parade and serenade everybody as they walk past, you know, to go to their cars and stuff. So we started playing surf music again. And people loved it. They hung around and started talking to us and said, hey, you guys could do some concerts, you know. And so I decided at that point to uh, put a band together. So 1990, uh, started playing surf music regularly at different concerts, but not 100% because I was still working. I didn't want to go on tours and do stuff like that necessarily, but we played some great concerts over the next 10 years. And so in 2000, my two sons, Devin and Joel, who Devin is now my guitar player and Joel is my drummer, and my wife Jean is my bass player, so we put together the, the, the amazing Berry Hills Safaris, and we started playing since 2000, so it's been 17 years now. You know what? I'm looking at on my laptop, I was Googling the Safaris, and the, the Google page comes up. There is a photo on the Google page, not on your website. It's on the Google page of the Safaris. There's a woman in the photo. Is that your wife? That's Jean, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I got it. And well, you know, and back in those days, there weren't, weren't too many women bass players. What happened was is that we had a bass player, another bass player, and another drummer, but they said, well, you guys play too fast. We're going to have to quit. <laughs> so my son, Devin and Joel, at that point in 2000 said, hey, we'll play. So, because uh, they had been playing on their own with other bands, and so we uh, we put ourselves together as a really tight unit, and so this June fourteenth, fifteenth, and sixteenth this year, we're going to be playing with the Ventures. Oh boy! And they've reconstituted their group, so we're going to play the San Diego Fair on the fourteenth, the fifteenth, on the sixteenth. We're playing at Don the Beachcomber in Sunset Beach, which is near Huntington Seal Beach, and then on the seventeenth. Saturday night, we're going to play at the uh, Malibu Inn, Malibu. which has a club there on the beach. So we got three days of waves, we're calling it. I'm looking at the cover page. It says three days of waves, the ventures, and the safaris. That's Yeah, it's, it's going to be a night of instrumental surf music. Okay, that's great. On. That is great. I think you will sell them out, if you haven't already. I've been working on this, believe it or not, for about three years. And the ventures, is that Walk, Don't Run? Walk, Don't yeah. Run, Hawaii Five-O. Right, that's right, Hawaii And they do a great job of caravan. Uh, what it's, what's great about it, it's going to be a spectrum from 1958 to 1968, that whole 10-year period mm -hmm. where we were all producing songs. And they're going to be... We're not going to repeat one song twice. They aren't going to play Wipeout. We're not going to play Walk, Don't Run. So anyway, so we're all going to play... They're going to do their whole instrumental thing. We're going to do our whole instrumental thing mm -hmm. and give the people what it really sounded like, let's say, 1963. What did it sound like? 
and we're going to play it that way. Because we don't, we don't do, well, you know, Dick Dale's still out there playing. I don't know if you've seen Dick. No, I haven't. Uh-uh. Well, he kind of does a collage of things. He'll kind of play, play about two seconds of the wedge and then go into Mizzard Lou. I mean, it kind of rams things together. Uh, but we're going to play them as actual songs. You know, we're not going to cut it and go, okay, well, that was enough of that because you're tired of that already. No. We're going to play it as if it's a great song. Have your musical taste changed since those days? What kind of music do you listen to now? Well, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing because I started basically with instrumental uh, music in the country area and then basically switched to when Dwayne Eddy and and the Ventures and those kind of guys, I kind of switched to that kind because I always hear the guitars. That's what I hear when I hear a song. I listen for what the guitar is doing. And then basically rock and roll, that kind of thing, and then kind of moved along. And right now, for the last couple of years, I've been going to Nashville. Huh. I've got some friends that are professionals back there and do all the session work, talk to Dwayne Eddy. In fact, I went to his 79th birthday party at the There's a music, There's a Musician's museum that's run by a guy named joe chambers but if you haven't been to that it's it's amazing it's hmm. a new museum it's in nashville it's in nashville yeah. it's at the old municipal auditorium in the basement they have a whole area down there they've turned it into a musician's museum and it's for the guys like the wrecking crew and all of the guys who played everything that was done like I say all the, play, the guys that played on your records and stuff their their equipment is there and the stories, and I've got Wipeout. I've got my original reverb unit that I recorded Wipeout with. That's there in the museum. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, it's a great museum. Um, we've been talking about the 60s all along. Do you, and I'm sure all of us, note the differences between today and the 60s. Is there anything that stands out for you today that's totally different than what we were doing back in the 60s? Well, I guess technology, yeah. since I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, in the 60s, with the Tom Hanks movie, That Thing You Do, where you had to be discovered by a nice guy in a camper, you know, and then signed. Today, you can just go on Facebook and iTunes and all of that, like Justin Bieber. He came on the scene and made himself into a star. Well, you couldn't do that back in the 60s. No way. Yeah. No way. There was no. no way to do it. I mean, right. uh, like you say, you guys were told, hey, these guys are playing your instruments. You didn't get it for a long time. Well, we started out doing our own stuff, and then towards the end, they started bringing people in because we had Gary Usher, who was our producer. He was the guy who helped write 409 for the Beach Boys. Sure, yeah. He was in there. He was our producer at Decca Record. And they brought him in to give us a new sound. <laughs> Well, the new sound turned out to be the Beach Boy sound. That's what he wanted to do. Okay, yeah. So, you know, he came in, and so he brought Chuck Gerard and those guys in, and Bill Cooper and Richie Podler, these guys that were kind of the wrecking crew types of guys. And they came in, suddenly we'd show up at a session, and there would be the charts, and he'd had all these songs for us to play, and we go, we don't like these songs. <laughs> well, that's what you're doing. So yeah. <laughs> we would play it, and then we'd be on tour, and he'd finish the album for you, you know, and have Ronnie come down and sing a lead. That's about it, you know. So those kind of things. But I guess the music business is now, like, for instance, I have, you know, these, these, these CDs that you're seeing on the, our website. I self-produce those, 
and have those on TuneCore and iTunes. And so I kind of get to work now as my own publisher, my own record company independent. Yeah, I would think that's kind of nice, actually. As long as there's a few bucks there, I would think it's kind of nice. It is. And, you know, like I said, I re-recorded Wipeout, and so I've got my own version of Wipeout out there and Surfer Joe. That's my son Joel singing Surfer Joe. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And uh, so that's my two sons and my wife and I. And then we, like I say, the Wipeout album re-recorded that, and then we added 10 original songs. And uh, why that's important is because when after we did Wipeout and Surfer Joe, uh, Dot came to us and said, hey, we need a, an album to support your 245s that you got out there. And we said, sure. So we went back to Cucamonga and recorded the, the 10 songs that are on the Wipeout album in one day. Now, how much fun would that be, right? <laughs> and then in two weeks later, the album came out. And in 1963, I don't think you could produce a record in two weeks. So what had happened is that Richard Delvey and Associates went down to Hollywood and recorded the, all the other songs for us. So they, the album has their group, got friends of his, to actually, and they, and then our manager brings us the album and puts it on my stereo in my house, and he starts playing it. They go wipe out and surf for Joe, which is us, right? And then he started playing the other songs, and Ron Wilson, who was older than me, he was a year, two years older, he says, you know, I don't think that's me playing <laughs> on the drums, <laughs> and then uh, you yeah. know, Fuller goes, well, I don't think that's me playing the. Well, it isn't me. And then, so we asked our manager, and he goes, well, they overdubbed you a little bit because you're not union musician. You know, good excuse. So that started the lawsuit that I mentioned. Earlier. Okay, all right. And so we, you know, when you're only 16, the thing's called Jackie Coogan Laws. Okay, yes, I, that? yes, vaguely, fun. that sounds familiar, yeah. Well, it's what keeps all of these kids, like, uh, that are like Michael Jackson, to, to be able to keep their money until they get to be 18 because if you didn't have that like him Jackie Coogan was one of the original Eastside kids uh, Little Rascals okay yes and so the money was then put in trust funds for us until we got married or until we became 18 and without that we wouldn't have made any money but anyway so we got we got thrown off a dot because you know um, fraud was what our attorneys claimed occurred because we didn't our parents didn't like the idea of a record being out there saying it was the safaris with pictures on it and it wasn't us playing other than Wipeout and Surfer Joe. And so if you look at the album it says on the bottom of the Wipeout album other songs done by other instrumental musicians. So they had to do that. Yeah. Those are details anyway. Yeah, I know you're working in about three weeks. What goes on after that then for the well, rest of the Well basically I retired from teaching. I taught automotive for about 25 years at, and two or three community colleges here in Southern California. So I retired from that. And I'm running the publishing and our iTunes and working with agents. Uh, my two sons run the websites. My wife also contributes to that and does a lot of designing, like the logo, the big S that's got a surfer in it. Anyway, we're, gonna, we're getting those little charms made up. We're going to be selling those at our concerts. We do T-shirts mail order I do that plus uh, go to the gym a lot I think you one of your questions was you're getting older well I go to the gym three days a week yes that's good good for you that you're doing it yeah so you know I just turned 70 this year okay so so I figure I got another 10 years in me so I'm, I'm continuing to work hard on staying in shape and I have a, a pro tools uh, recording system here at my house and so I just finished about six songs that I've been writing, so I'm going to be working on those, putting a new new CD together, 
And so musically, we're doing great. My two sons both write songs, and so does my wife, and so we're putting together new tunes. So basically, I'm, I'm, I'm going back to do what I did when I was 15, to become a musician. I'm just going, using my own uh, equipment here at uh, Pro Tools, and I'm becoming a basically recording engineer, uh, doing my own recording, and uh, then we'll go into the studio and finish it up. It sounds like you are having a good time right now. I am having a great time. I mean, I love it. I live here at the beach, looking at the ocean right now as we speak. Uh, have done my, between my wife and my two sons and myself, we've worked hard to gather up our resources and uh, continue the quality of surf music and the surf life. I'm currently writing a book about the safaris, and I'm starting to collect all that. I've got the memorabilia market cornered for the safaris. I've got like 17 uh photo albums with stuff in it that I'm going to put together and uh, release. So It almost feels like that we have only kind of just tapped the surface, actually. So, uh, But uh, thank you so much for all of the uh, great info. And uh, I'm going to stay on top of what you guys are doing. Uh, I'm curious about this Ventures and Safaris thing. Uh, on June, starting on June 15th. That sounds like it's going to be a fun deal. So, all right. Well, thank you again. It's been a spectacular hour talking about a lot of good stuff. And uh, I will be in touch in the future. Okay. Good time to you, Dick. Okay. You take care. Okay. Surf's up. All right. Good. I'm going. All right. <laughs> yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Some of you probably already know that the America's Oldies But Goodies podcast is now on iTunes, Stitcher.com, and iHeartRadio. But for you iPad and iPhone users, I now have my own app, which you can get through the iTunes App Store. As Chris mentioned earlier in the show, you need to visit my website, americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. And not only take a listen to the archive of all of our shows, but to check out all of the retro and vintage merchandise available there. Recently, I added to the shopping page on my site some really interesting items from Amazon Collectibles. One is a custom-framed Beatles ticket collage from 1964 which features copies of tickets from every show they did in the U.S. that year. Also, there's an 11 by 14 autograph photo of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, signed by both Dean and Jerry. As a kid, I saw every one of their movies. I think it was 25 cents to get in. And also, for your daughters and granddaughters, or maybe even great-granddaughters, there's a beautiful Swan Lake Ballet figurine that plays an 18-note movement of the music from Swan Lake. You'll find all of these at americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. You can also email me with your suggestions on what guest you'd like me to have on the show. I'd love hearing from you with any ideas that you've got. So until next week, keep your face in a smile. It makes everything worthwhile. Bye-bye. You've been listening to America's Oldies But Goodies with Dick Scapatoni. If you've got any questions or suggestions, send us an email. The address is dick at americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. Join us again next week for more memories from the good old days. In the words of Jerry Garcia, what a long, strange trip it was. The Swingin' 60s. I'm John Berg. See you then.